This is Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears. Federico tonight is on location at WWDC, so filling in for Federico is my good friend, Mr. Tom Bridge. Tom, welcome to the show. Fraser, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, could you just uh, really quickly introduce yourself to the audience and, and let them know kind of what your your background and your experiences with all this business of iOS and Mac? Sure. Uh, so I'm an IT consultant here in the Washington, D.C. area. I run a firm called Technolutionary, and we provide IT support to uh, small and medium businesses, uh, primarily focused on Macs and iOS deployment. Uh, we support probably around 600 Macs and are probably around 100 different iOS devices that are in management of some kind. We support a bunch of other iOS devices, you know, as day-to-day operations and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm also the uh, producer of the Mac Admins podcast. Excellent. So... You were able to watch the keynote, Tom? Yes. Uh, although I was at uh, Mac DevOps this week, uh, I did get a break free to watch the keynote. And uh, it was very interesting. It was it was kind of cool to see what Apple's been working on. I always, I, I always approach WWDC with equal parts dread and excitement <laughs> because, uh, you know, you never know what they're going to do to your workflows. You never yeah. know what they're going to do to uh, release new stuff that's going to, uh, you know, both excite you and break the stuff that you use on a regular basis. So, uh, yeah, it's it's always kind of a bit of watch through you know, hand over your face kind of situation mm. because it's like, Hey, I love the stuff I'm doing right now, but Oh my, everything's changing. And that's always an adventure. Yeah. I, I don't know. Did you get the sense in the keynote that somebody Apple was a little bit upset about the story, the narrative that Apple's not really for the geeks anymore. Did you get a feeling oh, that yeah. there was a little bit of here are all of our tanks on the lawn and let us just show you our weapons. Is that, <laughs> well, I, I think that they, uh, you know, usually Apple tells you the story on their terms and they tell you when it's ready to buy. And I think that so, the, the narrative lately has been enough of a concern to them that they are willing to draw open the curtain a little bit more quickly than things are ready. And that's how we get something like the iMac Pro, which won't be out till the fall. Uh, and that, you know, the, the meeting uh, the, with the reporters uh, a month or two ago about the Mac Pro. Yeah, I, I was... Watching the keynote with a friend of mine who's another um, teacher who's involved in iOS stuff, and we, we were just sitting through the Mac section going, what are all these numbers? What, what does this all mean? You know, I, I think it's probably one of the most yeah. technical keynotes that we've heard in a long time. You know, it, it very I, far that away. That was thrilling. Yeah, it was It was a real rush to kind of like, I'm I, I'm not ready to keep up with this anymore. You know, I'm used to like, this, <laughs> I'm used to guys doing kabuki theater on an iPad Pro, you know, and this is, this is too hardcore for me, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I know you're an Apple Watch user as well as I am, Tom. Uh, that was yes. an interesting section of the keynote. It sure was. And I I don't know how much of it I'm thrilled by just yet. I'm kind of wondering if they're waiting to tell the rest of WatchOS's story when there's new hardware sometime in the future. Yeah. Uh, and that there's going to be a bunch of stuff that's baked into WatchOS 4 that is ready for release on new hardware, but not really talked about now. Uh, I mean, obviously, something like the Kaleidoscope face isn't all that interesting to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, series proactive faces might be. Yeah, that was an interesting part. I, th- I thought that's. I've noticed with the, some of the proactive stuff on my iPad and my phone is getting smarter, and and it's doing a better job of predicting what I might want to see next. And quite often, the Siri app suggestions for me are really, really good. Like quite often, I just yeah. go there, and that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, yeah, no joke. Yeah, and it often does. It's things really like, good at figuring out. Oh, sorry. I was going to say it often does things like the games that I like to play in the evening. There they are, right there. Uh, <laughs> it's all ready for your mini metro run right um, at the end oh of the my day goodness. take that game away from me my goodness uh, yeah you and me both although it did make the six hour flight home last night pass a lot faster i'll bet yeah so you were going to say something um, else there uh, yeah it's gotten really good at figuring out where i'm going uh which is weird because i never know where i'm going necessarily <laughs> um it's gotten pretty good at showing me you know hey you're headed up to merriweather today and you know it figures that out i guess from my calendar and from my email and offers me offers me directions up to merriweather in the morning and i really appreciate that because it's a little bit weird and a little bit creepy but i feel like it's just enough machine learning to make me comfortable with it and again it's apple so i feel like it's on device instead of in the cloud uh, which is, you know, something that I prefer. Yes, I think the the confidence I have with Apple in this is that I sort of have, or at least I feel like I have a mental model of what's happening here. That this is my phone yeah. looking at data that I know about 
in a way that I know about and doing something that I can predict. And I kind of wonder as we move into our machine learning future, whether even for things that are, you know, above board, it's going to just get harder to figure out how did it know that? You know, that, that's a potential risk for Apple, I think. Yeah, sure. And and there's going to be a lot um, in that space so, that we're going to have to watch and learn and see where we're going. Yeah, the, the Siri watch face is, is, I think it's really interesting because it kind of takes an idea for, of a watch being smart and actually turning it into something that is genuinely smart rather than just, it gets notifications being the definition of smart, you know. Uh, it'll be interesting. But I think Definitely. one of the key things is you're going to have to kind of be in the Apple ecosystem for a lot of that stuff. You know, you're going to have to have mail, uh, your mail in the mail app, your calendar in the calendar app, and so on. And of course, that's the nice thing about Apple is the back end doesn't have to be Apple. You can be on Google Calendar and still get some of that benefit. But it's uh, it's interesting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, and I'm kind of excited to see how they explore, especially now that machine learning is something that you can build into your application as a whole through a library. Yes, yes. And one of the things I'm excited about with Apple Watch is something that they talked about um, gym machines being able to transfer data to your Apple Watch. Now, I'm not a big gym user, but I'm interested in opening up the NFC chip to more and more applications because the one thing I've always wanted from my Apple Watch is this should be my identity token. It should unlock my car. It should unlock my hotel room. It should do all of these things. And I'm interested to see if this brings us a bit closer to that future. I hope so. I feel like there's uh, there's so much uh, missing potential for all of these things. And, you know, as somebody who goes to a, a fairly recently built gym, I'm kind of worried that uh, I won't see that for a few years. But, you know, the ability for the watch and for the Apple ID or, and for your, uh, your iPhone to act as, you know, NFC terminal, uh, you know, not just a transmitter, but receiver mm-hmm. is something that I'm pretty excited for. I mean, our coffee shop that's in our neighborhood takes a uh, square, uh, square pay, you know, which is the, uh, you know, the square terminal and will support NFC see payments that way. Um, but it's definitely something that a lot of vendors are still getting used to. Um, even if uh, Square Pay and, you know, contact list as a whole hasn't taken off quite the way that we'd hoped here in the States. Uh, I certainly enjoyed using the hell out of it while we, I was in Canada this past week. Yeah, we, we're probably one of the most privileged nations in the world in terms of Apple Pay adoption here in the UK, because we've, we've been on chip and pin for so very long. And contactless has become, was a thing quite a long time before Apple Pay came along, and Apple Pay just slipstreamed along and behind that. So um, I, I find now when I use Apple Pay, mostly on the Apple Watch, I, I just say, can I use the contactless? And they just turn it on, whatever button they press on the terminal, and I just beat my watch, and, and it, it's become kind of a normal thing here. Like it was terribly embarrassing and awkward the first time I did it because the whole shop would just turn around and look at you and go, did that guy just pay with his watch? Um, but it, it started <laughs> And it still kind of feels a little bit like stealing. It does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. We're definitely not like spending money, that's for sure. <laughs> for sure. And, you know, I, I'm hoping that over the next couple of years, as uh, vendors are making the completion of their move toward the chip cards, that they're going to spend the extra $5 or $15 to get the reader that'll support contactless payment here in the States. In some cases, it's just a case of the payment providers not always agreeing on what uh, standards to use internally. At least that was one of our problems that as we, you know, looked at point of sale systems for a client was that sometimes it's the processor as much as it is the bank's. Yeah, yeah, it's there's a lot of moving parts to get lined up there, isn't there? Oh yeah, yeah, so many more than I thought. <laughs> so let's dive into uh, firstly iPad hardware. I think uh, that was perhaps unexpected. I mean, the, this ten point five inch iPad has been rumored for so many, <laughs> so many different events yeah. that have happened. You know that finally we've got it out. Um, it's probably the least surprising thing, but kind of surprising how much hardware was in this WWDC overall, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, between, you know, the iMacs, the MacBook Pros, the MacBooks, the iPad Pros, the, uh, I mean, pretty much the only thing that didn't get a rev in public was the was the phone and the watch, which we're kind of expecting in the fall. Yeah. So basically, just to give an overview for MD who hasn't um, watched the keynote in full or, or been appraised of the updates, the 9.7-inch iPad Pro is gone. It is no more. Uh, replaced by this 10.5 inch model it's quite interesting because that's the that's the model we've got in school is the 9.7 inch ipad pro so we are now sitting on a cache of antiques already uh, which is quite funny (laughs) 
Uh, so the iPad line is, I think it, it's a simpler looking line than I've seen in quite a long time from Tim Cook's Apple. You've got fifth generation iPad, which is the one that was recently released, a uh, very low cost device at 339 starting, uh, 339 pounds uh, for the 9.7 inch display. And then you've got the smaller iPad Pro, the 10.5, and then the big iPad Pro, the 12.9. And you've got, I think there's now a clear step up the line. And there certainly is a very clear step in price as well, I'll, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just roughly speaking, price-wise, you're looking at uh, 32 gig entry-level 5th gen iPad, £339. The entry-level 10.5-inch iPad is £619. At 64 gigs and the entry level iPad 12.9 inch iPad Pro is £769 and those two iPad Pros go up to £900 in their Wi-Fi configurations and, and obviously even more for cellular as well so I think one of the things that I'm getting from this is that the iPad Pro is serious money now it's not an accessory to oh, a yeah. computer you know yeah, this is intended as a uh, is almost a standalone device replacement, and we have a couple of clients who are actually using it instead of laptops for their uh, environments. Now, granted, they're using, I believe, uh, right now, I think they have fourth gen iPad Air, or I'm sorry, it's uh, iPad Air twos primarily mm-hmm. in the field. But you know, when the time comes, uh, you know, my my guess is that we're probably going to move either toward the low end ten five at you know sixty four gigs or the upper end fifth gen iPad would. I mean, with cellular radios and it's a lot of it's going to come down to, you know, do we really want pencil support for these folks? Um, What's our repair story for a lot of these devices and what's our repair cost? Uh, Because, you know, being out there in the field, we do still see uh, these are, you know, folks working in difficult environments and it's always interesting to see how kind of repairable they are. Um, That's certainly one of the points in the favor of the fifth gen iPad is obviously the screen repairs are a lot easier. Yes, the the non-laminated display on that model. I kind of wonder if that's also something they were thinking about for the education environment as well, uh, because the, the mm-hmm. cost, I don't know if you've clocked this point, but the, the cost of replacing the screen on a 9.7-inch iPad Pro is actually only about £20 less than buying a new fifth-generation iPad. So it's, oh. I mean, that that's what you're talking about now. It's crazy. Um, so the Pros are very expensive to repair, uh, almost unreasonably so I, I don't know if are we being punished for not buying apple care plus i don't know but it feels well, a little bit that way yeah that's certainly something to, to consider and apple care doesn't always protect well apple care plus obviously on the ipad yeah. always protects you i i, I have just uh, had a an adventure with my top case on my uh, macbook pro uh that was very nearly quite expensive hmm. um they just tried to say that was incidental damage and not uh not uh, de- a defect in the product and it was going to cost me almost 700 us dollars to replace hmm. the keyboard on the macbook pro with touch bar yeah, this is. I mean, this is the cost of these highly integrated, highly uh, closely built things, aren't they? You've got to basically replace huge chunks of it all together. Indeed. And I mean, there's huge benefits from the perspective of the user in terms of the quality of manufacture, the quality of, of the visibility of the display, for example. I always kind of feel a little bit goofy holding the fifth gen iPads because I always feel like I'm touching something that's well above where the actual touch matrix is. Yeah. Uh, so it, it gets to be an adventure. I think it's going to be a place where we're going to have to watch very carefully how folks are interacting. Absolutely. So just to, to recap the, the way that the, the specs are now, the fifth generation iPad is still running an A9 processor. It's available in 32 and 128 gig models. Non-laminated display, no Pro features, no Apple Pencil support, and an 8 megapixel camera. Whereas this is one of the nice things that happened at this event as well, was that the two iPad Pros are now essentially identical, except for their size. So it's now an A10X processor, same as the iPhone 7. 64, 256, and I think this is the first time we've seen this, Tom, a 512 gig option for an iPad. Yeah, yeah wow. I, I I guess they're going after all that 4K video that people are going to shoot with them. Well, yeah, because both of those devices now have a 4K video camera and a 12 megapixel camera. As far as I can tell, it's the same camera that was on the 9.7 Pro, but the 12.9 has caught up with it now as well. Uh, sure. The 12.9 also gets a flash on the back. Uh, Second generation Touch ID sensor. Both devices have USB 3 and fast charging, which is something that was only on the 12.9 before. 
Both have white colour displays, true tone displays, uh, and this new ProMotion feature with the high refresh rate screen, uh, which I think will be very attractive to some people working in, say, an art situation or, or people who are heavy Apple Pencil users are, are going to really sure. appreciate that, I think, as well. I really agree. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that the 120 uh, hertz frame rate refresh means that when you're playing a 24p video, like out of, you know, if you're watching something out of the iTunes store or, you know, something that you've specially re-encoded at 24 frames a second, um, which is the frame rate that a lot of cinema films are shot at, Mm. um, you'll actually get that playback rate on the iPad Pro, which is kind of exciting. It'll actually go below the regular refresh rate for that as well. Indeed. That's cool. One thing I've discovered, neither of the new iPads come with the 29-watt USB-C charger. That's still an optional accessory. Uh, I say optional, but most people are going to really want that. I, I, bought, yeah. I bought it a while ago, and it's it's been life-changing in terms of... Because I teach a lot of Swift Playgrounds, and that can be pretty battery-heavy. Uh, if you're teaching it two or three hours in a school day, you, you could be really hurting for battery by three o'clock. Um, so having that charger has been yeah, very, very useful for me. But it's not still not standard on any of those models. Yeah, and that's a shame because that's such a big upgrade in terms of the user's experience that they really might want to consider including that in the box. I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about price already, Tom, and I think one of my critiques about that is I've just dropped a £1,039 for your iPad Pro. You're still seriously telling me I've got to drop another 25 for a cable and whatever it is, 40 or something for the charger that will actually charge it in a reasonable time and then your £160 keyboard case and your £100 pencil and your £29 pencil case holder. <laughs> I mean... Well, and you, or the 100 and some odd uh, pound uh, leather ca- leather sleeve for it. Yes. I mean, yes. that's... That's the that's the brutal one right now. Yeah. And uh, I, I, as someone who carries a pencil, but actually my mode of transport for the pencil is the box the pencil comes in because then I really, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to lose something that size. Yep. Um, don't worry, though. I've done it once already. Um, and it, it's so much easier to, and it would be so much easier to have a pencil holder in the in the keyboard case. Please, Apple, please make that happen. Yeah, we, we have the STM Ducks case for our school iPads. And that's a lovely case, and it comes. It has a little holder for the pencil, like just shaped on, in this in the kind of hinge of the case, uh, and that actually works really, really well. I see some kids who don't have an Apple pencil carrying a regular pencil in there, just so they don't forget it as well. Ah, <laughs> nice. Uh, so th- that's the kind of story with with the iPad hardware. I think it's um, it's a nice set of upgrades, but as as somebody who is a twelve point nine inch iPad Pro user already. I don't feel the absolute need for to go out and buy that new one straight away. I think it's got a lot of nice-to-haves for the next refresh that I get, but it's not something that's got me running to the Apple Store straight away. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I priced it out, and I, I contacted my Apple Store, and I was like, okay, get what would the price be for a 10.5-inch Pro, you know, the mid-tier with cellular and Apple Care Plus and the whole nine yards, and I was almost ready to pull the trigger when you and I had a conversation over Twitter that was a t- that broke the deal for me, and I don't yeah. know if we want to talk about this here or a little bit later. Yeah, let's but go for it, the way it's in w- to the hardware. Yeah, yeah, and the size classing of the 10.5-inch iPad is such that it's too iPhone displays side by side, correct? Yes. It's, it's not it, two iP- full-size iPads. Yeah, it's essentially the same as the 9.7-inch Pro or the, and the 9.7-inch 5th Gen in that respect. When you bring up two apps in 50-50 split view, you're seeing two iPhone versions and not two iPad versions like you do in the 12.9. And for me, I, I described it that way on Twitter, deal breaker. Yeah. I mean, that that took me from I was excited to think about doing this to uh, I'm going to wait and go see one in person. And yeah. I was hoping that ahead of a recording today that our Apple store across from my work site was going to have one in, on the floor to play with. Uh, unfortunately, that was not the case. And I went over there and uh, I just got to chat with our business rep. And unfortunately, they didn't have what we needed yet. So I'm hopeful that sometime in the next week or so, I can go down, test drive the unit myself and maybe complete a purchase because I'm rocking the 12.9 inch pro right now. And in some ways, it kind of feels like a mariachi iPad. I feel <laughs> like the guy with the big guitar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I might like to go to something that's a little bit you know more svelte a little bit more sleek and can uh you know has a little bit more horsepower so um i'll be i'll be i'll I'll let folks know what what i do on that uh you know through various other other means twitter facebook 
you know, podcast and stuff like that. But yeah, we'll see. It's not quite what we expected, the 10.5-inch Pro, because a lot of people thought that what they were going to do was take the 12.9 model and basically do an iPad mini on it, which is to keep the resolution the same but make all the pixels smaller. And that's not quite what's happened. As far as I can tell, this is a new resolution of iPad. It's not quite one or the other. Yeah. No, that's right on the money. Yeah. If they had done an iPad mini on the 12.9, I would have been a lot more interested in that because I agree with you, the 12.9 is great, but it is quite big and quite heavy and it can be unwieldy, particularly in a teaching situation where you've got it in hand and you're walking about trying to operate it uh, and teach at the same time. So I'm I'm keen for something smaller, but not at the, at the expense of uh, giving up that kind of multitasking experience that we've got on the 12.9. Yeah. Okay. So let us... Um, leave hardware behind and dive into software because I always feel that um, a lot of people in the tech press and, and a lot of people you know, generally get very excited about new shiny hardware, but I always feel that it's the software that's really the soul of the machine. And that's what, like iPads come and go and they get revved quite frequently, but the software takes longer to get right. You know, And sometimes as we saw with iOS 9, a feature that comes in one version can persist for a good couple of years before it gets touched again as we saw in iOS in the iOS 11 reveal. So shall we dig into some, some features of that, the, the new iOS? I'm excited for this because I do agree. I think that it's not just how you hold the device, it's how it runs. Yeah. So let's go from the kind of the top down, if you like, the new home screen and the dock. The dock, uh, in, in brief summary, the, the dock can now hold up to 13 or 15 apps, uh, depending on whether it's a 9.7 or a 12.9. Plus, there's a space for three apps that you, we'd called them proactive before. There's a space on the right-hand end of the dock where iOS tries to guess what app you want next and put it right in the dock for you. Uh, you can also have, there's also an idea of contextual menus on, um, on apps. So if you tap on an app in such a way, and then we'll talk about this as well, um, that you don't actually open the app, but you sort of select it in some way, um, a little popover menu comes up with recently used files inside that app. So that's going to be another way to get into into files in iOS 11. Um, what do you, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you like the new home screen? You know, I, I really like the new home screen. It was, it's been past time for Springboard to get some attention uh, because, you know, I do kind of feel like I've been very limited in terms of what can be down in that quick, you know, at least on the home screen in terms of what's in that quick launch dock. And there's probably, I mean, I have an iPad, uh, you know, uh, Pro that I take out in the field with me. I've got maybe five or six apps that I'm constantly in and out of. Um, and, you know, to th- there I could fit them all in the dock, but now I can fit them all in this new dock uh, with some extra to spare that are more notification oriented uh, and it's it's really nice to see them uh, you know kind of take a look at this and figure out what's going where those three rightmost positions on the dock are a little confusing to me and I, I don't always know what Apple's up to there mm-hmm. um, I don't always feel that their machine learning has figured out my workflow yet um, and that's going to take some time. We're early in beta land here. Uh, you know, I, I installed, you know, beta one on, on the, on the iPad while I was, you know, out on the trip, just because it's not my primary machine, which is still my Mac. Um, but it is a machine that I spend a lot of time with and I'm trying to spend more time with. Um, so I'll be very interested to see how this kind of operates. I'm not in love with the new multitasking mode yet. Cause I kind of feel like sometimes it's hit and miss. Um, and in terms of the way in which you, you invoke it, it's, it's kind of an adventure, um, and not always a good one, but you know, I feel it's early days on this and we'll, and I'm going to have to let some, uh, some proof be in the pudding on this one. One thing I'm, I'm quite pleased about is in the app switcher screen, the, what the screen you see when you double tap the home button, um, this has been something I've been going on and on about for years now, but in iOS 9, they made it very, um, aesthetically pleasing to kill all your apps by flicking them up from that view and they just it's like you know <laughs> making it rain or whatever you know flipping away bills um, but you you felt quite rich doing it um and, and i noticed in school that kids just loved doing that they, they would just happily sit and flick away apps for ages um but we actually had a number of incidents incident excuse me incidences of um, serious data loss because of people doing that, particularly in apps like iMovie and Microsoft Word. 
Uh, what kids didn't understand was that when you press the home button, the app isn't finished working yet. And I had a, ch- a child in school who lost about an hour's worth of video work in iMovie because they just killed the app as soon as they pressed the home oh. button. Um, so that was a learning moment for them. Uh, but try as I might, I have not been able to get past this. And, and one of the reasons, I think, is also because the Genius Bar people tell people to do this now, um, even though it has this um, severely... Uh, detrimental effect on people's data so that's been made more difficult i'm not going to say how it's done now because i don't want it to spread any further but there is still a way to kill an app but it's much less pleasing to do and it's much slower to do as well yeah i appreciated that that's a lot more deliberate now and it's not something you do by accident and uh you know i do think that there's what i really liked about it was that it preserves your spaces so that if you've got you know google docs side by side with safari and OmniGraffle on side by side with Omni Outliner, um, you can keep those workflows in place, and it gives you good solid, you know, I- ideas so that you can actually return to those workflows, return to those pieces, and engage with them that way. It's really exciting. Yeah, I I have really struggled to get a mental model of how this is going to work, and I, I in my initial reaction was very negative towards the way that they've changed uh, split view multitasking and things like that. But I'm starting to sort of, after a few days of use, I'm starting to see, okay, I'm thinking about this wrong. or Well, not thinking about it wrong. I'm thinking about it correctly for iOS 10. But clearly there's some new thinking here. But what I kind of feel is that they didn't do a great job of explaining why it was that way. They just said, look what you can do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could have used a little more education, even just, even for myself, just on we did it this way because this now enables you to have this and this and this and this. And I feel like I'm sort of slowly discovering the reasons for that. Um, but it's not, it's not in, intuitively obvious what is possible now. That and, you know, I'm still swiping left from the right edge of the screen and, yes. uh, you know, to start multitasking. I, I think it's going to be a little while before I get used to, you know, the, the, the grab and the drop and, you know, some of the things that are associated with it, with how it handles, you know, multitasking as a whole right now. Um, I, I think that the user interface story has yet to be written all the way. And yeah. I'm hopeful that at some point in the, later beta is they'll figure some of that out yeah i have i have two complaints in principle about what they've done with multitasking and 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 app pairing the first complaint is that in order to select an app to go into split screen or even slide over it relies very heavily on the app being accessible from the dock so if the app's not in the dock you have to go back to the home screen to find the app and then you have to initiate a drag and then you have to use your other hand to get the other app that you wanted up and then you can place them in a side-by-side configuration. For me, that's very difficult. And I think um, many people will find it difficult to hold one thing on the screen and use their other hand to do something else without accidentally letting go of the first thing. I'm, I'm slightly concerned that a lot of people are not going to get that correct. Yeah, and I feel like the, you know, moving from popover to side by side is going to be a, a bit of a challenge for folks because I don't always get that the first time out. Uh, you know, I'm staring at my device now. I had my Google Docs open. I wanted to check a Slack notification, and you know, so I, you know, swipe up from the bottom to get the doc, tag Slack from my doc, and then try and get it up there. And then I've got it in popover, but I can't figure out how to always get it from popover to side by side. So yeah. I feel like there's a lot of adventure that we're going to experience over the next uh, little while as Apple kind of refines some of those gesture bases uh, into, you know, repeatable objects. The, the, the second criticism I have with, with it is that in using drag, drag implies that there's a little bit of a delay before it does what you want. And I think it makes the interface feel very slow because when you touch down on an icon, let's say, the first thing that could happen is you could be trying to open that app. So the system has to wait a second to make sure that's not what you meant, and then it will initiate a drag, and then you can move it somewhere else. So there's a lot of little pauses are just inserted in your everyday workflow, just a, a, a millisecond here and a millisecond there, but that soon adds up over the course of the day. And I feel like um, there needs to be, uh, and this is maybe all just tweaking and timing, but I feel like it just needs to get faster. I need to be able to just rip something off the dock and put it into multitasking as fast as I can think about it without having to wait for the computer to think about it first. And I feel like in a lot of areas with the the current implementation of drag and drop, there's a lot of that kind of 
wait till the computer gets what I want to do here and then I can do the thing that I want. But don't wait too long because there's another thing that happens if you do a long press. Um, for example, if you try and drag an image out of Safari and if that image happens to be a link, you have to hold it for just long enough for the computer to think you didn't try to open the link and then it'll start a drag. But if you hold it too long, it thinks you were meaning to get the popover menu. And there's a lot of that. And I think that's going to be very tedious unless it gets uh, tightened up in some way. Yeah, and I think this is just another reminder that touch is a difficult interface to master. And yes. when you're not working in a place with modifier keys or modifier buttons like you are kind of on the Mac world side of things, you've got to be a little bit more flexible in your um, touch metaphor. And I feel like there's some space for the timing to be just a little bit tighter than it is right now. And I feel like that's some feedback that people can give through the feedback assistant to Apple is that, hey, you know, you really should make the the the, the touch timer a little bit tighter so that um, so that it's less a concern about accidental engagement, um, but, you know, less a concern of wasting your time, I think, is uh, is part of it. Yeah. And I think that that's going to be a, that's going to be an adventure. There used to be I don't know if you remember using um, I work for iOS in the very first version when it ever came out when the iPad was new there was a thing you know the black edit bar that comes up when you select something it's got cut copy paste and various other other controls in there it used to be with objects in keynote that you would tap once to select the object then you would tap again in order to bring up this edit bar where you could cut and paste these objects but if you double tapped you would start editing the text inside the shape and there was a very narrow window of correctness where if you tapped twice too quickly, you would start editing the shape. And if you tapped and waited very carefully and then tapped again, you would get the cut command that you were looking for the first time. And at some point in, yeah. in iOS's evolution, they changed that so that as soon as you select an object, the edit bar comes up straight away. And I think yeah. bringing up that optional user interface immediately on selection is a way to make that interface feel very fast. But at the moment, I mean, to be fair to developers at Apple, it's the easiest thing in the world to just play with the timings a little bit to invoke three different actions because it involves much less coding than building a new user interface for it or something like that. But when you add that optionality through durations, it, it becomes very imprecise. And a lot of older users, for example, or younger users indeed, often feel like the interface is buggy or unstable because they, they don't understand the difference in what they did the last time from what they did this time, which might have been 10 milliseconds either side. And I think that's yeah. a concern. And it leads to it leads to a degradation of user trust in Absolutely. the device that they're using. And so, you know, if Apple really wants to focus on these folks, uh, you know, who are, if Apple's really trying to make this a pro experience, which is what they say they're trying to do, um, they might want to, you know, be a little bit more focused on intentionality for actions and allow the user to drive those actions more intentionally than having to guess at timings. Yeah. Yep. So in, in principle, that's my criticism of what Apple have done with iOS 11. And I think it's, I mean, a lot of pro iPad users are just relieved that Apple's done something. But I think now is the, oh, yeah. now is the opportunity to be a bit more, um, be a, a critical friend a little bit and, and be clear. I mean, I'm not trying to be really down on iOS 11, but I've, I've seen, I've been around this long enough to know that if you do this in a touch interface, you've got these five problems that come along after it. And I just hope that everybody at Apple has remembered that as well. And I, I think that, you know, it, one thing that it, it was very clear to me from this keynote is that they, you know, an engineer feels challenged, you know, when they when we say they're not doing something right. And I get that. Believe me, I get that. Yeah. Because I feel like, hey, we're all these armchair quarterbacks, uh, you know, coming back and saying, hey, really, you should do it like this. And I trust that Apple has a pretty strong, um, you know, tradition of the human interface. Uh, I mean, they, you know certainly brought to bear one of the very, very first commercial, honest to God, human interfaces that people could really understand. It's the reason my mom can use a computer, right? She is an incredibly smart woman with a master's degree in mathematics, but computers were entirely foreign to her until she could use a mouse and until she had a graphical interface in front of her. So, you know, it's, it, we do have to trust that Apple's history is there and that they are spending time testing and refining these kind of things. And now they've got a much wider audience that they can test with and refine with. But so I, I would encourage people as they beta test the software, as they test the software, use feedback assistant, tell Apple when you've got a chance to, uh, you know, to really spend some time thinking about what you think it should be and just tell them. 
And feedback that they don't get is feedback they can't use. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I have already failed a number of things on on iOS, and one of them is about this issue of uh, the ease of assembling multitasking interfaces. Because like you said about user trust, Tom, I think iOS users are used to, like, our apps mostly stay where they are and they don't disappear. You know, you've got your split view, you've got your right-hand app, you've got your left-hand app. It's a very stable experience. Okay, it's a bit tedious to pick a second app, but it's very stable and very understandable. Whereas I think in iOS 11, it's much more flexible, but I feel in, in early use that I, I feel like I'm constantly rebuilding my workspace every time I switch an app. And I think one of the sure. reasons for that is because I haven't thought about it in terms of I've now got multiple, like I, I've stopped thinking like the, a Mac user already. Whereas I think if you're coming to iOS 11 from being a Mac user where you've got spaces and you've got you know split screen spaces and, and mission control and things like that, that would actually make more sense to you. But I've, I've so much already stopped thinking about the Mac that to me, I'm like, where did my iOS go? <laughs> and and yeah. thinking about it like, okay, there are four pairs of apps here and I set up this pair and I set up that pair and I set up this pair. And instead of switching between apps, I switch between workspaces. Maybe that's the way to think about it rather than switching between individual apps. Yep, and and I think that that's going to be how you have to rebuild it, and that's how you're going to have to message this to your internal users that, hey, you might want to spend a little time during your first day with iOS 11 setting up some of your workspaces and thinking about how you switch back and forth between applications because I feel like that's going to be something that users will benefit from. And you know how we message this you know, after an upgrade to our staff, to our colleagues, to our friends mm-hmm. uh, is going to be really important, and it's going to be something that we're going to be spending a little bit of time on internally is building the messaging structure that how we tell people about new stuff because i feel like how you tell people about new stuff matters almost as much as giving them new stuff to begin with because then it helps them kind of puts it put it in a frame that they understand and put it into a frame that allows them to easily access this new software that we've handed them because we want them to be excited about this stuff we want them to be engaged with it and we want them to spend quality time working on their environment so that they can be productive with their with their iOS devices, whether they're iPads or iPhones uh, or Macs. And how we communicate that with them helps them build trust with their devices, which lets them use them more. It lets, it lets them use them more for cooler stuff. Absolutely. And I think for, for almost everybody listening to Canvas, I think they're, they're going to be the guy or the girl who is the person that all their friends go to for an explanation of why iOS is doing this thing. And I suppose that's why I'm so nervous yep. about this big change is like, I can't spend another year just telling people how to use this thing. I need, <laughs> I need just to work like yeah. they expect, you know. But if, if it gets us over a hill to another land, then, then let's go for it. Tom. Well, and I think so. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about Control Center. How do you feel about the new Control Center? Boy, do I not know how I feel about this one yet. I love that we can customize it. I love yes. that we can move things around. Um, am I in love with the particular UI element of it? No, not at all. But I haven't been with any of the previous versions of Control Center. I've always felt that the feature itself was le- was had left me wanting more. Mm-hmm. And I feel like now we have a little bit more, but I don't feel like we're to another land yet. I feel like we are, we are stepping forward, and so I want to give it a good shot, but... I, the the real jury is out for me until I can put it on my carry phone. Yeah. I am right now only testing this on my <laughs> iPad. Um, and so I'm not hundred percent sure I'm down with it yet. I still miss it when I swipe up and I've got to, you know, do the double swipe up to get it, get to it. But yeah. I, I feel like there's some potential here. I, I have hated every revision to control center that has ever been done. I don't know what it is. There's something about that particular part of iOS. I mean, I've been I've been okay with even like the new Safari icon in iOS seven, which a lot of people hated. But see, mm-hmm. every time they change Control Center, I just viscerally hate it. And and then I eventually get used to it six months into the life of that operating system. But I, I hated the iOS nine version. I hated the iOS ten version. I now hate the iOS eleven version as well. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the feature, um, like you, but just visually, I'm like none of these are right and then one day eventually feel natural and then the next one looks weird again um yeah 
I, I kind of wonder if that's where we are right now with this and that it's I, that I will love this more once we get to a point where it's lovable, but you know, or where it feels normal. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel we're there yet. And I, I do love that we're now able to add more elements to our control center, that it's all in one space, that there's no swiping back and forth between multiple spaces, yeah. which is hugely helpful. Um, but yeah, color me skeptical, but I, I, I feel like there's, there's going to be a lot of getting used to this. I think the, the one of the big plus for the iOS Living Control Center is how much more functionality is in there. And even some of the basic things that have lived on for years, like the airplane mode button and the Wi-Fi button, they can now do additional things. So, for example, I think if you have a cellular device, there's now a button for control of personal hotspot in there, which is awesome because my kids always oh, want nice. that turned on in the car. Um, you can control the cellular radio separately from the Bluetooth. Um, so airplane mode doesn't kill the Bluetooth immediately. Um, and then the one thing that I love is... Do you know how in Control Center, when you bring up Control Center on iOS 10, it shades the rest of the screen? And then when you change the brightness, it has to unshade that part of the screen so you can see what brightness level you're setting. And then um, that is all gone now. So you're actually seeing the native brightness level straight away, which is uh, is a, a big help as well. But this, Yeah, that's really great. This leads me into my one of my unalloyed, absolute favorite features of iOS 11, which you can only get to from Control Center, which is screen recording in iOS. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thrilled. I, this is one feature that I think is, is down and out a winner. And, you know, without question, um, there are some refinements that I'd like to make it to it. And I've already filed a couple of radars that mm -hmm. are out on open radar for this. But, you know, I, the option to just give people a video without having to plug it into a Mac yep. is thrilling to me. I'm really excited by this. Did you catch already that if you long press or 3D touch on the record button, you can turn on the microphone as well? Oh, no, that's great. Yes. Yeah. So you, you can record from the microphone and and get the uh, what's happening on the screen as well. So it's a full end to end. It's a, a tiny little button in control center enables an unbelievably cool workflow. And I'm sure you've seen as I have on Twitter already, like people are sharing these videos all over the place on Twitter. It's a real uh, huge boost to, uh, you know, just a simple instruction for how, how to use things. Yeah, no, I mean, I was going to say we're going to spend a lot of time rebuilding some of our uh, internal help documents so that folks can actually see that on the screen. So that's really hugely helpful. So uh, I'm hopeful that between that and the new screenshot annotation system uh, that's that's in there, that we're going to see a, a lot of really cool things to come. So let's talk about that annotation system, because this is another life changing improvement in iOS 11 uh, to the point where I'm thinking, can I just put this on my iPad today because I want this so badly? Um for people who haven't seen it yet, what happens is when you take a screenshot, instead of going into your photos, it just sort of zooms down to like a little overlay in the left-hand corner. And then if you tap on that, it brings up a, a Apple Pencil powered, if, if you have it, um, annotation view. So you can immediately crop the screenshot and you can draw on it with a pencil and various other colors. And then you can share it directly to something. So there's a share button there and you can, for example, screenshot, crop, mark it up and immediately tweet it, okay? Or message it to somebody or something like that. And then it doesn't go into your Photos app at all until you press the Done button and choose to save that into the Photos app. Apart from that, uh, the screenshots are just, they disappear into the ether, which is going to be awesome. Yeah. Which is great because as someone who with a with a large iPhoto library that's full of random screenshots, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm kind of hoping that this comes to the camera button as well, if only so that I can, you know, take a picture of a back of a router someplace mm -hmm. and not have to store that in this, the original photo library. Yeah, that's all, uh, another um, interesting option as well. I think, uh, what was I going to say about that? Um, yes, scanning documents inside Notes might be a way around that. There's there's a new, uh, essentially a document scanner. It's only built into notes. It's not part of the camera, which is kind of interesting and strange in itself. Maybe it would have been nice to have a, another option on that barrel in the camera where you just go document and then you could save it to wherever. But uh, if you're inside notes, you can snap a picture of a piece of paper and it'll straighten it and de-skew it for you and, and put it into the note that you're working on as well. 
Yeah, that's going to be hugely helpful for our clients where we want to do like, you know, sign contracts or sign NDAs yeah. um, right on the site. And and I think that that's going to be a huge difference. I also love the new instant notes feature, speaking about notes, mm-hmm. where if you're at the lock screen and you tap on and hold on with your pencil, uh, you go straight into the notes application if that's on. And then you can work in that note without having unlocked your device. And then, you know, you can put away your device and it's there waiting for you later when you unlock the device. Yes, and, and it works very much like the camera where your device is still locked and you don't have access to all your other notes. You only have access to the one note that uh, I think is it's the last note that you were using for 15 minutes. And then after 15 yep. minutes, it becomes a new note again. So there's a wee bit of security built into that as well, which is nice. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot of good uses for this that are, you know, sane and private that that allow you to be more functional without having to lock your device all the way. Yeah, I, I feel it's something we talked about in our, in our pre-WWDC show was that on iOS, I kind of feel like the locked state of the device is a little bit interfering with functionality now. We want to get to more stuff. And I'm wondering whether Apple Watch proximity might be something in the future that we could uh, we could maybe use. Because, of course, that already works on the Mac. But could could that be brought to other iOS devices as well? Yeah. And, you know, the the security story that's that's coming out of this is something that I have, you know, questions about. I mean, in, in specific, you know, kind of how do, how do some of these features deal with supervision? How do some of these features mm-hmm. deal with the, the more lockdown security measures? And so I, I think that there's a session happening literally right now at WWDC uh, on, uh, you know, the, the new features and how they're going to be handled in the security model and by, and by MDM and iOS. So that'll be a video that you can watch later. Yes, we'll, we'll definitely be into that. There's always one sh- one episode of WWDC where uh, they go into the kind of nerdy deployment stuff that we we normally love on uh, on our other podcasts. Uh, so we'll definitely be digging into that. Uh, but we haven't we've spoken for about forty minutes now, Tom, and we've not mentioned the Files app either. Finder comes to iOS. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, what, what big deal is that? I, I think that this is going to be a whole lot of interesting stories because it sounds like they're going to be intending to use document providers as a common, um, you know, to, to give them a common place to hang out uh, and, and build their environment. I, I'm I, I'm still a little skeptical to see how this shakes out. Um, I'm surprised they called it files and not the finder, um, if only because that, that, that would have been an interesting nod, although I'm sure some, some folks would have taken that as, oh, no, this is where the Mac is going. <laughs> um, yeah, but. And so I feel like that's a that's a reasonable you know expectation. But you know having some some way to to go through and view all the documents that are available on your iCloud Drive on on your iPad, something that's that's been recently deleted, as well as provided by you know document providers like Dropbox and mm-hmm. uh, Box and Google Drive and, and and all of those services. It's a good common way to have those available to your device, and I'm kind of thrilled by that. Honestly, um, I, I kind of felt that this is something that iOS has. Been been missing since say ios 7 maybe a little bit earlier than that would, would be a way to to kind of look at these kind of things and uh i'll be very interested to, to play with this some more to tinker with it um I, obviously during the beta period it's not going to be something that you can do with your ios or with your document providers or at least i haven't figured out how to do it yet um so i i think it's going to be interesting yeah i think from my understanding of the documentation um developers like Dropbox and Google Drive need to do some work on their apps and their extensions in order for them to participate in the files application. But once they do, you'll see iCloud Drive, you'll see Dropbox, you'll see Box, you'll see Google Drive all in that sidebar, and you can browse all of those there. For me, what is really is going to be very interesting is how does this change the way that people start their work on iOS? Because since, mm-hmm. since iOS 1.0, we've always started our work by finding the app that we want and then going in and choosing the file and then getting to work. And it will be very interesting to see whether or not um, our workflows now start with a files application more often, if not all the time. We always go to files first and we get the file and then we do our thing, unless maybe we're making a new file. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out and how long it takes for people to unlearn that for people who've been using iOS for a while. Uh, for productivity tasks. I think files initially looks really quite powerful. It has filtering, it has search, it has tagging in there. Uh, The interface for creating tags is very simple. You just drag a file to a tag and that applies the tag. Um, The interface for removing tags from files is a little bit different, um, a little bit more involved, but uh, I've finally figured out a way to do it, which is if you press and hold, again, press and hold, wait a little bit, 
a black edit bar comes up above the file. One of the options there is tags, and you can add and remove uh. tags there. Um, but again, all of this tapping and holding for just long enough is making it harder and harder to discover some of these features. Yeah, and I think that you know some of this is going to be learning through exploration for a time being until yeah. we get some of the later pieces. It was really funny. I, I opened up tips today to see what kind of cool tips had made it into the uh, the original beta. There's one. There's one <laughs> tip for iOS 11 right okay. now. So I think that it's early days for the marketing department to know what's going on too. Absolutely, and I think it also it sort of speaks to there are so many things changing. Um, it's almost like we need another one of those iPad adverts. Do you remember the first one where it said, like, what is iPad? iPad is this. Yeah. And there was, like, a real push to just explain to people what iPad is. And it feels like almost Apple should revisit that for iOS 11 and say, iPad is now this and this and this. You know, there was a lot of mm-hmm. uh, very explicit instructional video produced back in the early days. And I think uh, we could maybe stand to have another revision of some of that stuff. Yeah, I think this would be an interesting time for them to actually revisit a lot of that story, to reintroduce the iPad to people that might be on the fence, that might be a little skeptical. And, you know, there's been this huge push for Pro and, you know, people like Federico and people like the the, the great folks at Mac Stories have been pushing so hard on making the iOS world, um, you know, a primary professional world. And, you know, not just for basic content consumption that, you know, I feel like there's a receptive audience and now's the time to capitalize on that. And there are a lot of features in this in this new OS that are are, feel like almost direct responses. I would have loved to have been sitting in the row with Federico when they when they said, oh, yeah, by the way, we meant to tell you about all those other things that are coming to iOS, (laughs) because I feel like it would have been uh, I feel like it would have been amazing. And uh, (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty happy. I've had a little chat with him on Slack, and he's uh, he's really over the moon with a lot of the stuff that's come out. Um, I don't think he's he's maybe has as much time to actually play with it on a device as I have. Um, so I'll be interested to kind of hear from him in a couple of weeks' time after he's had a chance to really dig in as well and see how he feels about it. But it's uh, it's exciting times. I want to mention just one yeah. other feature, Tom, before we kind of begin to wrap up the new keyboard. I mean, there's a new keyboard. And we, we're, we're an hour in. We haven't even talked about the keyboard yet. Um, yeah, looks cool. And you know, yeah. I feel like they they glossed over that so quickly. They didn't spend a lot of time kind of telling people what this actually means. Yeah. Um, that you know, I feel like there's there's a lot of there there's a lot of interesting stuff, you know, coming here for this. Yeah. Um, so this this and, keyboard. And that there's sorry, I was just going to say this keyboard. Oh, no, 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 um, this keyboard actually came from Swift Playgrounds. So when Swift Playgrounds was introduced at WWT last year. Inside that app, there was a special keyboard for writing code, it was, said, it was said at the time, where you could pull down on the keys to get to all the symbols you need to write computer code. And what you see in iOS 11 for iPads lower than a 12.9 is literally the keyboard from Swift Playgrounds uh, right in iOS. It's graduated from Swift Playgrounds right to being the iOS keyboard for iPads now. It doesn't come up on the 12.9 because the 12.9 has got those extra keys anyway. It's more like an actual hardware keyboard. But uh, for smaller iPads, this is actually going to be, I think, quite a big win for, for most people. Yeah, and I'm excited to get to test it. The uh, iOS 11 beta is going to go on my Air 2 later this week. And uh, I'm hopeful to uh, spend a little bit more time on that because my primary iPad is my 12.9. So mm-hmm. I hadn't noticed it as much. But I, I'm really thrilled at the idea of a more flexible on-screen keyboard that you know requires tapping the shift key just a little bit less. Yeah, and we've, we've been using it for about a year teaching Swift Playgrounds at school. And it's um, kids are starting to get the hang of it, and uh, that's the way I've described it to them at school. I just said, you know, you guys know this the Swift Playgrounds keyboard. It's just that for everywhere, and they're like, wow, that's exactly what we wanted. So, uh, kids, mm-hmm. our kids are pretty discerning iOS users now. They're pretty, uh, <laughs> they're pretty sniffy about their features, so they want uh, they only want the best. <laughs> um, so, uh, there's only one last thing I want to talk about, Tom, which is person to person Apple Pay. How cool yeah. is this? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really going to be interested to see kind of how this shakes out because I feel like this is Apple taking a step into a space they've never been in. They've been in payments, but they've really been facilitators. Now they are also holding a bank for you. So I'm kind of excited for, for this to kind of step out. I'm, I'm, ex- I'm definitely excited. The idea of being able to ditch PayPal um, and, and, you know, work with somebody I like and trust a little bit more than them. Um, there are a lot of questions out there. How are they, what kind of policing are they going to do? 
do on transactions. Uh, how is the transaction, you know, where are you going to be able to spend this transaction? If Is this a, a place where you can only spend it with Apple Pay? I can count on one hand the number of places I can actually do that right now. Hmm. Thankfully, one of them is the grocery store. So okay. I, 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 that means I can go and buy, you know, bread and milk. Therefore, it is real money. Because uh, I feel like that's kind of one of the things holding back things like Bitcoin is that you can't buy groceries with it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being able to use the, the this payment source other places is certainly going to be quite interesting. It's a little bit, it sounds like it's a little bit different than a lot of other payment types. But, hey, maybe uh, maybe I should just start ran- sending random iMessages to people saying, hey, you owe me 20 bucks and see who pays up. <laughs> just to get the experience of having done it in the new beta. It's a whole new path for uh, uh, ransomware extortion. <laughs> well you know i mean that's kind of the other question at this point do you build an app that uh, that that can go and do this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and uh, i'll i'll i think the i I think we don't know enough to know what this is going to be like yet and i think that's okay yes uh, although it's an interesting one isn't it because apple has such a strong reputation for, for privacy and now this is transgressing if you like into an area where um maybe privacy isn't something that people should have about yeah. some of the transactions that they do, you know, because I, I can, the first thing I thought about was, yeah, all my gardeners are going to want paid in this, you know, <laughs> how, how much tracking, how much taxation goes through that. And taxi drivers are going to, going to want paid that way, you know, and every kind of casual labor job is going to get paid that way. Um, but it's interesting that one of the, the sad things for me is that this is US only at launch, uh, which is quite surprising to me considering the point you just made, which is that, um, if the only way you can get money out of this is to spend it at a terminal, uh, the relative difficulty of doing that in the US makes it perhaps, uh, I'm surprised it maybe didn't come to the UK first, I don't know. Yeah, and you know, I think that maybe because of that, maybe because it is going to be a smaller volume of transactions mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, especially where things like Venmo and PayPal and Square Cash have all kind of, you know, made limited headroads that they feel like this is uh this is just enough to to be watching this circumstance. Uh, so I feel like they're going to get enough data to kind of figure out. I, I, I feel like there are a couple of marketplaces where this is going to be a lot more challenging for them. And I think that those marketplaces are Europe where contactless is everywhere mm-hmm. and where it's an expecta- expected part of the world. Um, and China, which, you know, has for various other reasons, a market that is, you know, stabilized on, on another payment transaction mm-hmm. that is mobile to mobile. And that's WeChat. Yeah. So I, I'm going to be very interested to kind of watch this as it happens, to watch Watch Apple learn about this world because I feel like they've already learned some of the story, and now they're going to learn another part of the story. Um, and I hope I'm hopeful that they'll be able to do what they need to do. Watch the space. I think on Apple Pay, it's, uh, it's certainly obviously growing in the US, already very big in the UK. It's almost all, already normalized in the UK because we have such a pervasive use of contactless cards as well. Uh, so it's sure it, it'll be interesting to see. Because like, even, like, as I said, with the files application, I'd be interested to see how people's behavior changes. Like, does it become normalized to do an Apple Pay transaction between two people? Does that become a thing that we do? I strongly suspect it will. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of excited to see what that's going to look like and to see, you know, how we how we deal with that. And, you know, we'll see. And, and I, I'm hopeful about this. I feel I feel good about this. This doesn't make me feel like... Apple's getting in over their head. It's just they're taking steps towards something that they haven't done before. And they're being deliberate about it. And I think that that is a, usually a sign of good success. Absolutely. I think to wrap up... And that's up, now the fire alarm going off. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, let me let me give you my wrap-up feeling about this WWDC. It feels a little bit more like 2015 when iOS 9 came out. Um, there are some years where you get the things you get, you can use straight away. And there are some years where the things you get, it's going to be a year or two before you really feel the, the weight of them. And that happened with iOS 8 um, in terms of things like document providers and extensions. It took a while for people to get that working correctly. And then with um, the split view multitasking as well, that was another thing in iOS 9 that became uh, something that maybe took a year. I mean, some apps still don't quite support it correctly. Hello, iTunes U. Um, but iOS 10 was not that kind of release. iOS 10 was very much, here's what you've got, you know, we've enhanced it a little bit and it's ready to go. But iOS 11 feels very much more like iOS 8 and 9 where some of the stuff is great on day one 
the screenshotting, the video recording, all that stuff. But for example, files, I think it's going to be a year, maybe two years before we see the full power of something with files coming through because Apple will get feedback from their developers and uh, they may need to do another revision of some of the APIs to make it work for everybody's use case. But I think we're looking at something for a couple of years time. It's going to eventually be really, really powerful. Yeah, and and I think that there's a there's a lot to be excited about out of this, and I do think that you're right. I do think that we won't see the the primary story for files right away, but that that is Apple's single most interesting to me at least single most interesting place to be right now, and we're going to see what that world looks like for management experience for supervised devices for which file providers are going to dive in headfirst. I mean, I, I'm terrified to to think how long <laughs> it's going to take you know somebody like Google to participate yeah. in that scheme. Um, but I'm hopeful that they can drive adoption to that for all of the major providers, at, you know, at least the drop boxes and the boxes and the OneDrive folks of people mm-hmm. on, on moment one. And that then thereafter we can actually get, you know, the people like Google to participate. And that I think that there are a lot of places to be excited right now. Um, but I, I think that there's going to be a lot of wait and see too. Absolutely. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think we we could wrap up there. Can you let people know where to find you online? Sure. You can find me at uh, T-Bridge on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, You can find the Mac Admins podcast at podcast.macadmins.org. And you can find my Mac Admin face, I'm sorry, find my Mac Admin facing blog at cannonball.tombridge.com. Awesome. The show is underscore Canvas FM on Twitter. You can reach me at Fraser Spears on Twitter. Federico will be back next show. He is Vitici on Twitter. Thanks for listening to our WWDC wrap-up show. We'll be back to various productivity topics very soon.